Hey, welcome to the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast, where theology and youth ministry meet. You can learn more about Youth Pastor Theologian online at youthpastortheologian.com or find us on social media at Youth Theologian. I'm your host, Mike McGarry. Thanks for joining us for this conversation about practicing theology and youth ministry. I'm here in our studio with Clark Phobes. Clark is the associate pastor at First Church of San Francisco. Clark's married to Janet and is a girl dad and is one of my best friends. Uh, Clark and I, along with our friend Kevin Yee, co-host the Thanos to Theos podcast together. And so this is a a fun chance to get together in a somewhat different podcasting format (laughs) where I'm in charge. And all the tech stuff goes wrong. (laughs) So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all the tech stuff Kevin's goes wrong, here. always, but only when I'm on a call with Clark. Uh, you're, you are my technology <laughs> kryptonite. So, <laughs> Clark, welcome to Thanks the YPG Podcast. Me, Good to see you on this other oh, platform of podcasting. I know, right? So, um, Clark, uh, I think it'd be fun for you to introduce yourself a little bit to our, our uh, YPT audience by sharing a little bit about uh, yourself as a teenager, what were you into? Um, sports, clubs, uh, other stuff. What, what sort of teenager was Clark <laughs> oh, man. Um I'm having all these flashes of high school, and it's like equal parts funny and terrifying. Like <laughs> just all these things flashing <laughs> in my mind. Um, so the first thing that came to my mind, honestly, was because of our probably because of our podcasts, and um, if anyone sees video, all the little figurines in my background, I was like a closet nerd. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. I'm so jealous of your background. I was a total closet nerd. Like um, I was really into Pokemon in middle school. I still loved comic books, but I had like thrown away or destroyed a lot of my comic books when I grew up because I was embarrassed by them because they just were not cool anymore in high school yeah um so i was a little bit of a closet nerd but i wanted to you know be with in crowd be a cool kid in school gain social status climb the social caste system that is Mm -hmm. high school um but the type of kid i was i was like the choir and theater kid um so i did choir uh pretty much all four years i was in high school um sang in various other singing groups. I was part of an acapella group in high school. We did our own little concerts and we would go around the school and we'd do these singing telegrams for people's birthdays. Um, so that was my thing. <laughs> Why have I never gotten a singing telegram from you? I need this my, is my whole question. crew to back me up to properly do the solo. So. <laughs> I n- next May 5th next year I want oh, a phone call gosh. from you and Kevin singing me happy uh, uh, a singing that would be the most happy birthday ever <laughs> Oh it, we just missed Kevin's birthday the other day we we should <laughs> we should call him and we could make him a, a lovely duet uh, those days are long gone it'd be very memorable gone, so but yeah I was definitely not a jock I tried at sports was not very good but um singing was kind of my thing I come from a musical family so and uh, I love I love doing musical theater too as um as lame as that may sound uh that was probably the most fun thing I got to do in high school yeah 
So when you go to like students' performances and stuff, are are you able to enjoy it, or are you like, eh, you're a little pitchy? <laughs> I think for the most part, I'm able to enjoy it. Um, usually, it just brings up lots of nostalgia, you know, like oh, I remember these days. Like I kind of miss yeah. this, um, but it's fun. I had I yeah. had one student in particular that uh, was very similar. Um, did all that in high school, and so I would go to some of her performances with my wife, and um, it was just fun, fun to see her doing that. Yeah. That's super fun. Hey, Clark, um, one of the things that you're working on is you're working on your D-Miss. D-miss. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what is a D-Miss and um, what does that have to do with kind of just ministry and culture and theology and uh, how has that been helpful for you and your own uh, pastoral ministry yeah. and studies? Uh, as you constantly remind me, I'm still not a doctor, uh, the perpetual time in my studies. It's, I think I'm on year, coming up on year six. Um, so, but a DMS is a doctor of missiology. It's kind of a weird niche degree. Um, it's, I kind of explain it to people. It's like an in-between, uh, of like a demon and a PhD. It's kind of sits right in the middle, um, about, you know, half practical, half academic research type. Um, but really, the DMS, it was created actually for missions pastors and mission uh, organizations in the West um, to give them, okay. uh, to fill kind of the need for a more academic degree for teaching and equipping and accrediting, um, giving out degrees overseas, but with a, you know, missions practical bent. Um, so for me, I jumped into the DMS because um, teaching overseas was something I foresaw in my future. I wanted to be on the mission field. Um, and as I've been in it, it's kind of just morphed into like this degree that helps fill, uh, for me at least, helping me understand more about um, not just for missions, but in all ministry, like how do we do ministry that is um, properly contextual or contextualized yet faithful to the gospel uh, wrestling through questions about like um, church planning and ecclesiology and evangelism. I f- feel like those are all mm-hmm. very pertinent questions right now, especially like, especially in the cities you and I yeah. are in that are very, you know, progressive post-Christian cities where the old right. way, so to speak, of church planning, evangelism, mission is just kind of dying out and not even really working. And and I think a lot of people are also realizing that maybe that wasn't even the best way to go about it. So, um that's how it's really shaped mm-hmm. my current ministry in San Francisco. Um, and so I've been I've been focusing on this figurehead, John Livingston Nevius, who was a Presbyterian, uh, American Presbyterian missionary in the middle, middle late 1800s to China, um, and some of the forms that he used to reach Chinese people um, in moving away from like colonial Victorian era, very paternalistic missions and trying to be more indigenous. So that's been really interesting to compare that to mm-hmm. My ministry in San Francisco, thinking about missions overseas, but even just like youth ministry, how we equip and um, uh, and oversee youth, lead youth and disciple them as I'm still very much part of that. Yeah. So um, I- I've really appreciated uh, conversations we've had about contextualization and it's still a mouthful yeah. to say. Um, <laughs> and um, so I-, I really have been looking forward to having you on the podcast and schedules are what they are. Yeah. Um, but yes. here we are. So, Clark Phobes, what is contextualization 
And what are some common misunderstandings people can have about it? Yeah, so contextualization, it's a mouthful. Um, I think for some, it can be a loaded term uh, because of the history of what's come with that. So first of all, I think it may be helpful to start with the misunderstandings, like what contextualization is not or what it's misunderstood to be. I think on the one side, a lot of like very conservative uh, groups have this fearful idea of contextualization that it's just letting culture dictate everything we do. It's just moving so far into liberalism that you lose sight of the gospel and, you know, proper biblical hermeneutics. Um, And I think uh, on the other side, if I could say maybe more the more progressive or forward thinker liberal side, um, contextualization is like all they talk about and like looking and feeling like the culture Mm -hmm. is the main thing that they see their goal in, in presenting Christianity to the point where they're willing to adjust the message of the gospel. Um, And so contextualization Mm -hmm. at its like basic definition is really just uh, how do we communicate a message, whatever message, it's not just a Christian thing um, in terms and forms that are understandable to the hearers. Um, and so there's a lot of, it's not just linguistic translation, it has to do with cultural translation, um, yeah. you know, the, the themes and the stories that we tell, all of that is uh, doing contextualization. Um, and so I think what, what a lot of people tend to misunderstand is that contextualization, if that's the heart, it's just communicating a message in a culture or language that's understandable to the hearers, that's something that's been going on and is always going on whenever we do gospel ministry. Um, you know, I think Tim Keller is the one who says, like, as soon as we open our mouths, we're contextualizing because we're speaking in a language, in a time and place. And so contextualization is yeah. part of who we are because culture is part of who we are. The question then is really like, to what extent and what role do we let uh, culture and language shape what we say and how we say it? Um, and just, I think it's more just about the awareness uh, of how we go about it. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, in, in this sense, it's it's even like the Bible itself yeah. is contextualized because it's That's not written right, in yeah. Aramaic, right? Like they, it, it, <laughs> it was written in yeah. Hebrew and Greek, and uh, you know, so um, you know, even writing the New Testament mm-hmm. in Koine Greek is an expression of, yeah, of contextualization exactly. to make it understandable. So. Um, no, so that's, that's helpful. So what, when we think about contextualization, so if it's taking the gospel and helping and other, you know, Mm -hmm. biblical truths and delivering that to students in a way that they can actually understand and that they can, um, not just understand with their head, but, um, Mm -hmm. with their affections, right. And their desires and what they crave and hunger for and all that. Um, if, if that's what it's about, what is the unchanging gospel that drives contextualization? Um, every time I say this, I'm just, yeah, I, I'm butchering <laughs> contextualization. <laughs> yeah. Um, but <laughs> yeah, the, so what what is the gospel that doesn't change behind yeah. contextualization? Yeah, so that question sounds like it should be a really simple answer, right? But but that's one that's been debated even throughout the centuries over what's the heart of the gospel for salvation. Um, right. I just kind of think about, 
you know, think about our Reformation period, Protestant Reformation, and like all the catechisms that came out of that, they were very much mm-hmm. combating or, you know, reforming against Catholic uh, Roman Catholicism. And so, for them, one of the central tenets of the gospel was that, you know, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, but she was not divine. And that was really central to how they communicated these truths surrounding the gospel, both to communicate Jesus, you know, humanity and divinity, but also who Mary was not. Um, We don't really think about that in our modern presentation of the gospel. Like, we never say, we never talk about Mary. (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. We would never include Mary no. in the gospel <laughs> right. presentation. And that's usually the example I use for people. Like, when we're presenting the gospel, do you need to yeah. know Jesus was born of a virgin Mary? Like, is that part of our gospel presentation? And from we know from early creeds and, you know, historic forming of theology, like, that was so important to Christ's humanity and divinity. But we rarely think about that in the modern West. Um, so... You know, I think probably the best way I've heard it explained is uh, there's an article that um, D.A. Carson wrote. Um, I think it's called like The One Unchanging Gospel or something like that. Um, I can send that for show notes later. But um, what he yeah. says, it's better to think about instead of one like subset of what the gospel is, but a center point of the gospel. Um, and he says, if the center point of all of redemptive history and scripture is the cross, that's the center point of the gospel. Um, and then you have these concentric yeah. circles that move outward. Some are more tightly woven into that, like Christ's divinity and manhood, like yeah. the resurrection. Like those are central. Um, but then as you get further and further away, they become less and less tightly knit or woven into the center. And those are the points where we can be a little bit more willing to debate or budge or even let contextualization shape how we communicate them. So, so what Carson says is really at the heart of it is the unchanging gospel is Christ being fully man, fully God, coming to die for sinners and being raised from the dead. And then where we go from there mm-hmm. is uh, is a matter of just really yeah. a lot of discernment in our contextualization. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I've heard you um, talk about um, Eastern cultures and Western cultures and tribal cultures and um, different ways that, that missionaries and... Um, evangelists preach the gospel in those different cultural settings. Um, and so could you, could you share for us a little bit about um, how does, how do those cultures and gospel proclamation in those cultures kind of provide just a, a simple um, yeah. example for us of what faithful contextualization looks like. And I think this is where some of the questions about even like the center, the gospel center come up, you know, Um, because for us, when we naturally think, well, what's the center of the gospel? We think about Christ's death justifying sinners. Um, And that's, that sounds so like that's the gospel, that's biblical. And yet even in our contextualizing by saying that, it's a very Western individualistic way of thinking about the gospel. It's not wrong. It's just, um, it's one facet. Um, whereas we tend to downplay more of the like reconciliation between God and man and man and one another that more communal cultures will think about. Um, and so there's been, there's been some helpful books throughout the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years that uh, where, where this has been talked about a lot more, uh, about like anthropology influencing how we do theology. Paul Hebert 
was one of the big proponents of that. Who he was an anthropologist and a theologian out of Trinity, um, the late Paul Hebert. Uh, but probably the most helpful book is by Jason Georges, who wrote this book, 3D Gospel. Now, he's not, it's nothing new. He's building off people before him, but he just, he gives it in a really simple way. Where he talks about, like, really building off some of the anthropological insights of the 50s. There are three main, like, buckets we could think about of cultures globally. Um mm-hmm. And, you know, we're familiar with the Western bucket, which tends to be very individualistic. It's about guilt and innocence, about law, righteousness, justice. And then you have the more Eastern cultures, which are more communal by nature. They're more about like honor and shame. So how do you bring honor to yourself and the group you're part of? If you don't follow the certain social codes or norms, it's shameful. You bring shame upon yourself and those around you. And then you have more like the global South or tribal cultures that have more of a fear power dynamic where... A lot of the culture shaped around like this fear of the spirit world or the powers that be. Um, those who are in power have this sense of authority and everyone's trying to obtain power in some way. And so really what, what Georges and others like him say is that um, we should feel a sense of freedom to, to use the themes and terms in these cultures to communicate the themes and terms, the center of the gospel but I think what's even more helpful is they'll point to even specific instances in scripture where we see that happening. Probably the clearest way is if you look at in the book of Acts, maybe some two of our clearest gospel presentations, uh, Acts chapter two with Peter speaking to the Jews who are gathering at Pentecost, and then Acts chapter 17, where Paul's talking to um, the Athenians at Mars Hill. And they're just completely mm-hmm. different gospel presentations. Um, now, there's all this debate, yeah. right? Is that the full of what they said? Well, it's what we have. Like, so we can trust that what Luke wrote is enough. Right. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, with Peter's gospel presentation, he counts, recounts the whole history of Israel. He says that, you know, you are the ones that crucified Jesus, the Messiah. So repent and believe. Just a very clear, like, saying who mm-hmm. Jesus was. He was the Messiah, proving throughout Israel's history. And he calls them to repentance. And then you have a, Paul's presentation at, in, uh, in Acts 17 at Athens, where he says really nothing of the sort. He says more like the God who made us and everything we are. Like we're all trying to obtain him. Well, he sent one to help us find our way to him. And he's the resurrection from the dead. And it's just really curious. Like all he doesn't talk about the death of Christ. He talks about the resurrection. Well, why does he do that? Um, because they probably had this God, Anastasia, uh, Anastasia resurrection that would have confused them. And he's intentionally using that to break Mm -hmm. down some of their philosophical understandings of the gods. Um, Now, obviously, like that wasn't enough. We're told that Paul conversed with them later, uh, but that was the starting point for him. And so, and you can see that, I think, even in different the different books, like um, like Romans is our classic Western understanding of the gospel. It, it is about law and justification and Jesus breaking the law. But then mm-hmm. you have a book like Colossians, where the law is not really mentioned. And we we hear that Jesus is the, the head who defeats all the principalities and powers of the air. There's probably more like this fear power dynamic yeah. happening at Colossae, which Paul's writing into. And so... Even in the New Testament itself, we see mm. them doing this. We see them contextualizing uh, because for them, what was most important was not necessarily holding to the right terms of theology, but really getting their hearers to understand right. theology, the gospel, uh, in the way that would lead them to repentance and belief in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that's really helpful. So, 
Um, I'm, I'm thinking through what you're saying here and um, kind of some of the differences between Acts 2 and Acts 17. Mm-hmm. Um, gospel proclamation to the Jews and to the Gentiles and those who already have some uh, biblical worldview behind them right, and right. those who don't. Um, whereas Gen Z is a, a largely post-Christian yeah. generation. Um, you know, really the first post-Christian generation who's actually been raised not going to church, whereas millennials were largely raised in the church but then left it. Right. Gen Z is not coming into these conversations with much biblical framework, Mm -hmm. right, preset. Yep. So what does does gospel proclamation look like? What does Act 17 look like Mm -hmm. for youth workers today? What what do you think there? Yeah. That's a fantastic question. Um, it's one that I've always been wrestling with in my own ministry to youth, um, both because I'm in San Francisco, where we've had a lot of kids, especially in my previous church, over 50% of our kids were from non-church backgrounds. They would just come through friends, yeah. uh, they would find about the church in the neighborhood, they would come through our summer day camp, and that was an introduction to the church. But also because I've largely worked in the Asian church, being half Korean and just working in Asian immigrant, Chinese, Korean, uh, second generation churches. So even understanding how do I communicate, I remember coming to a point um, when I was in seminary and I was, you know, learning about all the proper doctrine, theological expressions and proclaiming the gospel. And I just kind of realized like it wasn't quite connecting with my Korean students. A lot of them were from immigrant homes. And so I had this, almost like a crisis of theology point where I was like, what, like, why is my theology not working? Uh, it felt that way. Now, a lot of yeah. people would say, well, you just need to be faithful to the gospel. Just keep preaching the gospel. It's because of their hard hearts. It's their hard hearts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, um, but I, I kind of knew that wasn't the case. Cause I even had some kids that were really trying to understand like they're kids, right? So they're going through this formation process. Yeah. They want to yeah. know, and yet it wasn't clicking with them. And so just preaching the gospel wasn't an adequate answer. Um, and it really led me down this path of asking, well, how would I communicate it in a way where the main, the core truths are coming across, but also it's coming across in a way where they're, like you said, their affections are being changed, not just their minds. Right. Like, yeah, I can tell you, yeah. I can spew out a good, you know, Westminster Catechism answer, but really yeah. my affections aren't growing for Christ. And so, that's when I really started understanding a lot more of this whole honor-shame idea of uh, uh, of Asian cultures, Eastern cultures. Um, and so, my own gospel presentation for almost my entire youth ministry time has taken on more of like an honor-shame lens. And that's because I've largely worked in Asian cultures, but also just because um, with Gen Z being so post-Christian, when we use these terms of like, you're a sinner, we've broken God's law, we're not righteous, we need to be justified. Those are all terms that they don't really identify with, right? Like we always we always talk about this in youth ministry. When we talk about being a sinner or sins, that's yeah. a term that most students say like don't understand and would even say, I'm not really a sinner because I don't do many bad things. Mm-hmm. But when we start framing things in relational standpoint, like well, when you think about your relationship with your friends, like how have you failed to live up to their expectations or your parents? Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about socially, 
the world you're living in? What are the things you have to do to be accepted socially? Like those are things they deeply understand. And immediately there's some, there's some heart, like, uh, what's that term? Like the flinching of the heart when they think about it. Right. Cause it's, it's just, they feel the pressure of that all the time. Yeah. And so what I found was really effective was taking the language and the terms that they're familiar with and pointing them to see like, well, that's the same way it is with God, the father, like there's, there's no amount of our own relational capital or appeasing we can do to have his, uh, uh, have his approval. Um, we can't get Mm -hmm. enough followers or likes, uh, or do enough humanitarian things to get God to notice us and like us on our own accord. Um, and so that's where I've really just tried to lean into that, um, the honor shame dynamic, because I think just from my observation, Gen Z is, is moving into this like pseudo honor shame culture, largely because of social media, but even just, I think how, oh, yeah. all, how all social dynamics are for kids in high school, like it's all about social capital, um, and status, you know, and that's a very honor shame idea. Um, it's all about the group you belong to. Yeah whatever, you know, if you're with the popular kids, you're more honored. If you're with the, the losers that hang out in the dark mm-hmm. hallways of the school, um, you're shamed. And, uh, and that's, that just resonates very deeply with, uh, with Eastern cultures. And so that's where I really found a helpful connection yeah. in how we can present the gospel in a way that's, yeah. um, that, that doesn't rely on them having to have previous understanding of Christianity. Right. Yeah. I think that's really important. And, um, I mean, I, I see it in my very white com- community and yeah. in my very white church, yeah. um, with my very white teenagers, um, <laughs> uh, there is definitely a heightened sense of honor, shame, yeah. um, when compared to the students when I started in youth ministry, right. um, about 18 years ago. Right. Um, and so one of one of the questions I ask students a lot um, is when when you think about God, what do you think God thinks about you? Mm-hmm. You know, and and I've found that to be a helpful contextualized kind of question to to get them to start thinking because it, it, they are so much more relational, right? Especially with social media, with cancel culture. Yeah. Um, the heightened sense of social justice yeah. that that teenagers have today. Um, I, I think that we need to really talk about contextualization. What does that look like? What does that mean? Because the way that we are evangelizing and mm-hmm. discipling students will look different than the way the other ministries in our church are doing that um, with our students' parents just because of the culture Right. That both generations have grown up in. Yeah. Significant culture changes there. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so what are, what are some basic principles that you'd recommend for youth workers to keep in mind? Um, so we don't want to over contextualize the gospel and that the culture reshape our message and its own image. Mm -hmm. Right. We also don't want to under contextualize the gospel, uh, where we, uh, what we preach fails to connect with the hearts and minds of our students. Yeah. Um, so if we don't want to over contextualize and we don't want to under contextualize, what are some principles or guardrails that we can keep in place for that? Yeah. And that's kind of like the, the million dollar question when it comes to putting this in, applic- uh, in, in application, right? Applying it on the ground. 
Yeah. Um, I think what we probably saw in youth ministries of previous eras was an over-contextualization where people thought like, you know, we talk about like attractional youth ministry was this previous era of youth ministry. Really, that was an over-contextualization of youth ministry. It was saying, mm-hmm. hey, we need to reach kids by all means necessary. So let's become like teenagers or youth by all means necessary to get them in the door. Um, so, you yeah. know, the classic huge games, uh, putting on worship nights that looked like concerts they would go to, um, you know, having like contests, prizes, drawings, lotteries, raffles, what, whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think for the better, what we're seeing is that as much as that may have worked in part for a previous generation that was this like more Christian, Christendom type era in yeah. a post-Christian generation, that's not going to work both because there's nothing to see them to attract into the church, but also because it, it was not healthy contextualization. It was giving them culture over the gospel. Yeah. And so the way I've tried to think about it, you know, if contextualization's unavoidable and inevitable, and in fact, it's good, um, then really we can't avoid contextualization because if we say we're avoiding contextualization or if we say we're not going to contextualize, well, actually what's happened is we have a contextualized gospel that sits in one culture and time in history. Um, it's a syncretistic gospel, whether we realize it or not. Um, and so gospel and culture need to have this kind of, I call it like a symbiotic relationship where they're continually yeah. in conversation where we're under, we're aware of our culture and we're always coming back to what is scripture? What does the gospel have to say about our current culture? And then from there, how do we, again, make that next step forward? So one of the questions I would, I would often uh, ask people is, um, number one, like what's your own cultural lens that's shaping and influencing how you do ministry? I think that's probably a first good step to start with. Like, I think sometimes we can be a little bit oblivious of the, what I call the host or what's called the host culture, especially in terms of missions where we think the yeah. host culture is the Christian culture. Um, well, that's why we had that whole, you know, uh, Victorian colonial era of missions where they were essentially just trying mm-hmm. to uh, w- civilize the barbarian, so to speak, like Westernize yeah. non-Western people. Yeah. Um, and so that's the first step is just asking where are there points in our own culture where we've allowed our culture to actually be syncretized with our faith and have authority over the gospel of the Bible in a way where it shouldn't. Um, I think that's something we're seeing a lot of today with like American Christianity, like national mm-hmm. religion. Um, yeah. And then from there, we can really ask, well, where does the gospel, where does all the the whole of the Bible need to have this uh, sort of like prophetic edge against our culture um, where maybe, you know, uh, American consumerism has influenced the way we do ministry more than we've realized. Um, I, I think, I think sometimes we think the, as long as the message is correct, then the forms and methods don't matter, you know, like they're, they're, yeah. they're neutral, they're acultural, um, or they're atheological even, but, or amoral, but really like all the methods and forms we use shape people if contextualization yeah. is all around us. Um, so yeah. that's something we have to be aware of, like, the methods we use, how, how we approach kids in ministry, uh, youth uh, youth in ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I think we can ask this question, well, what are some of the ways that we can see the good uh, in the present culture of youth 
uh, where we can allow the gospel to both take shape in that culture and also speak into it to be against it. A um, lot of lot of people, especially in um, you know neo Calvinism or Reformed backgrounds, they'll they'll kind of use that whole um, reject, uh, redeem, and reform um, threefold process. So, like, what are things in culture we need to reject? What are things that we can redeem that are good? And then, what are things that we can reform? Like, they they need to be changed. Um, so, so I think what's that, the difference between redeeming and reforming? Yeah, so redeeming is like saying, or or you know, receiving. I guess is more the better the better term there. Okay. Uh, receiving and and then redeeming or reforming. Um, like they're just things that are good that are inherent in all cultures that are made in the image of God. Yeah, that shed light on the uh, God's intention in creation. So we can just yeah. receive those, and then redeeming or reforming then um, yeah would be the changing and shaping. Yeah, yeah. it's helpful. So, oh man. So when we think about, I know there's so many, I have so many questions. Um, so you said that basically attractional ministry doesn't work anymore. I'm not sure I totally agree. All right. <laughs> um, I think it, it works, but it depends on what's your goal. Sure. Yeah. Right. Like we can still draw a crowd. Like if yeah. our if our chief goal is to draw a crowd and then slip in a gospel devotional, then then we can still do that all day long. Yeah. And build our ministry. But if we want to make lifelong disciples of Christ, then over contextualizing will change what kind of and and reshape what kind of disciples we're forming. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think probably the reason I say it doesn't work, probably a lot of that is context for me. Um yeah. in San Francisco, like sure, probably a lot of places in like the Midwest, the South, where there's a lot of Christian presence still, they could easily draw a crowd. Um mm-hmm. people will go to the church still for events and programs. And then you could throw a gospel message in and try to grab as many as you can. And then they'll disperse after that. What's interesting is um, I think what we're finding in some of our more post-Christian cities is, and that's why I say like it doesn't work because even trying to draw a crowd to the church is not really working anymore um, because people don't like, I'll just be, uh, you know, completely transparent with our church. Like we did try to do, we're trying to, brainstorm at one point for some outreach ideas and we're like you know let's let's put on something that some young adults in our city would like let's do a trivia night and so we hosted that at our church you know we went all out for it we did trivia it was it was for christmas so we did a lot of christmas things a lot of activities i think we had maybe two non-christians show up um yeah and and it kind of just brought this question up of like well even non-christian like even activities that aren't inherently christian well, non-believers want to go to a church for that. Um, right. And I think what we're finding is actually no. Um, so even drawing a crowd will not work. It doesn't. It's not working in a lot of post-Christian cities. It probably will mm-hmm. work less and less over time, even in some of the more Christian areas in America. Um, yeah. And and so what we need is a different approach. Even in even if the goal is just to draw crowds, well, or to reach non-Christians, like be in relationship. We need some different methods, um, right? To even try to m- have a meeting point uh, of, converse- so, of conversation. So the point, right? The point isn't 
let's do fewer things or let's right. be less creative right. to reach people. But contextualization right. means that in our Great Commission efforts mm-hmm. to reach people, let's not just assume more cool stuff yes. equals more non-Christians will come. Yes. The way that maybe that used to be true, but yeah. that's not anymore, right? Yeah. So this this isn't events are bad, outreach events are bad, game nights, board, like whatever. Right. The message is not those things equal bad right. and unfaithful and compromise. Right. Um, but let's really be thoughtful, um, keeping our end goal, all right, of lifelong mm-hmm. gospel discipleship. If that is our goal, what's the best way to do that? It might be something really simple and yeah. slow yeah. rather than something big and attractive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like I think even, so like the way I'm trying to think about like youth ministry, for instance, um, at my previous church, I think because we already had a lot of non-Christian kids from non-Christian homes there, yeah. we could kind of put on these, like we call them Q&A nights or gospel nights. We had different purposes yep. for them. And they would invite their friends. Um, and a lot of their friends would come because they knew these were also kids from non-Christian backgrounds. So like we still did those. Yeah. I think those were great yeah. ways to try to engage with their friends and give them a space to not feel the pressure to be the only evangelist in their friends' lives. Right. Um, but I think the way we always tried to think about it, and even now with my current youth in church, is how do we equip and raise them up to go beyond the church walls to do the work of evangelism themselves, rather than always relying on the church to do it for them. And I think, like you said, that's a much slower process. It's harder. I think it actually takes even more creative uh, capacities. I think right? so. Because like, we need yeah. to think like more creatively than like, well, then how do we help our own people think, like discern well and think creatively about how they contextualize the gospel rather than just relying on the church to put an event on. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And it requires more of our students because it's yes. probably calling them to get involved in the work of evangelism rather yeah. than us providing the evangelism for them. That's right. And all they need to do is bring a friend. That's right. Yeah. And it gets, you know, when when boots on the ground, when that actually starts happening, it can get messy, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's easy to stay in the ideological and just say like, oh, that'd be great. All their students getting out evangelizing, like they're doing the work. Sounds just very like really inspiring, yeah. right? Like very acts yeah. of the apostles-ish. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But so we, we, we tried this at like in my last round of students at my previous church, we were starting to do that more and it got messy. Like one of our students set, came to me and was like, I'm trying to do this. And like, it's just really hard. Like people aren't, aren't engaging with me or people are starting to be more combative against me. Um, we had some other students that were really like struggling to put the pieces together and sometimes saying wrong things, but like that was all part of the process discipleship for them too. Um, and I think the value was seeing how putting that ownership in their hands forced this sense of discipleship for them to take up rather than being just passive learners in the church. Yeah. Well, and do the parents also share that vision for their kids That's right. to yeah. do the work of evangelism, or do the parents just want their kids to be accepted right. at school? Because those are contradictory desires, right? Yep. Like, if you just want your kid to be accepted in school, and you want them to be an evangelist, you kind of need to choose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. So, that's also a, a parent discipleship and partnership. It is, definitely, too. yeah. And like, and I think what I've seen is probably most of us and you've seen is um, 
the families where the parents are trying to do that together are the ones that yeah. are most successful, so to speak, both in terms of their yep. own discipleship and and their own evangelism um, as they're trying yeah. to engage as a family with other non-Christian families. So, viewing it as like this holistic, whole family discipleship um, yeah. really helps, I think, uh, rather than thinking about it like it's just me as a youth pastor working with the youth and the youth on their own, but uh, mm-hmm. but we're a church and a family doing it together. Yeah. So, as we wrap up this conversation about con- contextualization, I still stumble <laughs> over every single time. Um uh, do you have a, a final word, warning, encouragement, admonition, anything, a uh, final word for you as we wrap up? Yeah. I mean, I think I would just say, you know, when I talk about this with people, the most natural response is maybe just feeling a little overwhelmed um, of like, how am I supposed to do that? I'm not a missionary. I'm not trained. Um, there's all these further questions that come up with uh, this whole realm of like, cultural engagement it usually comes hand in hand like well how then should the church or should the christian think about their posture in society or against a non-christian society um and i would just kind of i always just kind of charge people to think um when they when it comes to things like this is are there things we can learn from those across the other aisle from us um and so like i think one of the classic examples is you know the if we really think about it, the mainline denomination has been trying to do contextualization a lot more than more the conservative realm of Christianity. Now, mm-hmm. they've gone to the other extreme, right? They've over-contextualized. We talked about that, yep. where they've lost a lot of the historic gospel. But they've been trying to be a presence in their communities. They've been trying to engage with non-believers. And so, it's been really challenging for me um, when I've actually sat down with and and talked with and learned from mainline denomination pastors in my city, just kind of hear some of the stuff they've been doing. It's kind of helps me get out of this like maybe more conservative corner and just ask yeah. the question like, what can I learn from them? Like I don't need to accept everything they are. It doesn't mean I'm going off the liberal deep end. But how can we just learn from other segments yeah. of the global church? How can we learn from the past? Um so that we can, as we're holding on to the historic gospel, uh, grow in our understanding of how we engage in a world that's constantly changing. Um, Harvey Kahn has this great book called uh, Changing Worlds, Unchanging Word, um, where he essentially says in there that as the world changes around us, we, we never lose the unchanging word of God. And yet, because it's it came to us in a contextualized form like jesus came as a first century palestinian jew like he was crucified on a roman cross then we can take comfort to know that uh, as the gospel takes shape and forms as the world changes um we're allowing the gospel to do its work and we don't have to fear so much about losing it if we're constantly seeing the unchanging word of God. So, and Harvey Kahn mm-hmm. was a PCA pastor uh, in the, in the sixties and seventies. He was like Tim Keller before Tim Keller was born. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so just learn, um, you know, don't be too weary about all that's out there. Uh, hold fast to the historic gospel, but also be willing to learn from those around us um, and asking how we can uh, continue to be a salt and light where we are and how God calls us to. Yeah. 
Amen. It's a good word. Um, hey, before we before we really close out, um, give our listeners a pitch for why everyone should also uh, like and subscribe to Thanos to Theos. Hey, yes. And how does how does what we're doing with <laughs> Thanos to Theos fit in also with this contextualization question? Yes. I mean, this is like essentially... We got to do a little bit of self-promo, right? (laughs) Yeah. um, Thanos to Theos. Uh, We're on at Thanos to Theos, Instagram, Gmail, uh, Twitter. But I mean, essentially, this type of like cultural analysis is what we do essentially on every episode where we're trying to ask like, what are the good themes that we can draw out of um, for us, at least like the MCU content that we're watching? Uh, and other cultural things, even if Mike hates the other too things Star Wars. Do, like Star Wars. <laughs> There's too much Star Wars. <laughs> um, and really just trying to, you know, like we, we talk a lot about like what Walt Mueller talks about too, um, with as we engage with culture, uh, how do we not let it just, not just be passive people who consume media and just let it shape us, but to actively engage to use discernment, but also uh, use it as a means for connecting with with kids. And so, I just think that's been the most fun thing for us on Thanos Theos is like yeah. hearing from kids and parents. That yeah. will, like parents will message me and say like, I listened to that episode and it was really helpful for me to have a conversation with my kid because um, they're really into the Marvel content these days. So, um, and even if you don't care about Marvel, like hopefully even just some of the cultural analysis or the media analysis we try to do and the theological outworkings um, can be helpful in how we live in a cultural world and consume media um, and, and try to think about our own formation in Christ likeness. Yep. Yeah. I I know some of the best comments uh, and feedback I get from people about that podcast is actually from youth workers and parents who do not care one bit about (laughs) Marvel and, that's right. Um, all that stuff. And they're like, but my kids do. Yep. And it's helpful for me. <laughs> you are my spark notes. <laughs> <laughs> that we are your spark notes yes. to the MCU. So, yeah, it's it's a fun conversation. So, anyway, um, Clark, thanks for thanks for your friendship. Thanks for your ministry. Likewise. And thanks for joining us on this episode of the Youth Pastor Theologian Podcast. Thanks for having me. To our listeners, thank you for your ministry. Uh, we want to encourage you to keep your eyes on Jesus as you listen to your students and ask good questions to understand their lives and their worldview so you know how to faithfully uh, proclaim and apply the gospel and God's word to your students. So I, I trust this uh, episode of the podcast will serve you well in that endeavor. Well, thanks for joining us for this conversation. Please visit youthpastortheologian.com to learn more about our resources. You can find us on social media at Youth Theologian. We also have an active Facebook group where you can ask questions, share articles, and generally encourage fellow youth pastor theologians who are in the trenches with you. We'd sure appreciate it if you'd be so kind as to subscribe, leave a review, or even recommend this podcast to fellow youth workers. You can also subscribe to get new articles delivered to your inbox and to ensure that you don't miss any fresh content by checking out our website at youthpastortheologian.com. Most of all, we appreciate your ministry and your partnership in the gospel. If there's a topic that you'd like us to address or if you have an article to submit for the blog, then you can also share those 
on our website by following the submissions tab. In the meantime, keep your eyes on Jesus and we'll see you next week.